Thank you for listening to an audio resource from Stanwich Church, located in Greenwich and Stamford, Connecticut. The vision of Stanwich Church is to know Christ and make him known. The Old Testament lesson for today is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. This can be found on page 305 of your Pew Bible. David desires to build a permanent shelter for the Ark of God, but God speaks through the prophet Nathan, saying that he will build David a spiritual house, which will lead to the eternal throne of Jesus. A reading from 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning with the first verse. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore... Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke with David. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. It was the romantic date of every woman's dreams, or so I thought. It was my junior year of college, and I was dating my then-girlfriend, now-wife, Rachel, and I had it all planned out. A romantic movie marathon. Movies of my choosing, of course. (laughs) 
I had the popcorn together, her favorite candy and drinks, even a little makeshift theater. There was only one problem, my choice of movie. In my infinite wisdom, the most romantic thing I could think of at the time was the famous trilogy that had just come out, The Lord of the Rings. (laughs) So I remember sitting down being so excited and we turned on the first movie and we made it about 30 minutes in and she was over it. And to this day, I don't think Rachel's watched another minute of The Lord of the Rings. (laughs) I know what some of you all are thinking right now, I can't believe she married that guy but the joke's on you because I can't believe it either. (laughs) Now, in my defense, I want to say at the time, there were millions of young men and significantly less young women around the globe that were obsessed with this series. I had grown up reading these stories as a child, and I was so excited when they had been made into movies. The story is based on Tolkien's books about a group of great redemptive heroes that were willing to risk everything to save Middle-earth. And what I find so interesting about Tolkien's books and these movies is that they're not particularly unique in the tales of the world. In fact, throughout history, many of the great tales, many of the great legends have followed a common theme about a king or a great hero that used to reign. And when he did, all things were right. But now he's absent and things are in chaos and the people don't know what to do. But one day he will return to make all things right again. Think Robin Hood or King Arthur. And Tolkien, he actually knew this when he wrote these books, especially I think he had this in mind as he wrote his third installment of the series titled Return of the King. And what I find so interesting is that he would go on to say that all these legends, all these tales, although they're not factually true, they're all based on one story, one archetype, one original story that is true. And this is why the human heart yearns for them. Have you ever wondered why we can't get enough of hero movies? I mean, there's about 10,000 Avengers movies. They won't stop making them because our hearts desire, they look to this great redemptive hero. So what is that archetype? What is that original story on which these are all based? Well, I believe that story is what we are going to read about today in 2 Samuel 7. And what we're going to see specifically in this text is that David... He was a good king, and he reigned in a good kingdom. But Jesus is the much better king with a much better kingdom. So let's pick up the story in verse 1 and see exactly what I mean by David being a good king. It says this in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now. I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. We've come to a point in King David's life where the story has taken a major shift. We read about his defeat of Goliath last week, but since the defeat of Goliath, David has been on the run. He's been living in caves and he's been fighting for his life. But now 
he finally has rest and peace. With God's help, he's consolidated power. With God's help, he's defeated the Philistines. With God's help, he's established the kingdom of Israel. With God's help, he's brought back the Ark of the Covenant. With God's help, he's built up the city of Jerusalem and now built for himself a palace. Everything is as it should be, or so it seems until he sits back to relax. Now, I want, to imagine, I want you to imagine him with me for a moment. He's sitting there relaxing on the beautiful veranda of his palace. And as he's sitting there, he looks out over the city of Jerusalem, and he sees this wonderful place that he's built up. And then his eyes shift to the tabernacle, this glorified tent that was set up to contain the presence of God. And he sees the tent, and then he looks back at his palace, and then he looks back at the tent, and he looks back at the palace, and then he looks at the tent, and he realizes something. This is not good. I live in a nicer place than the God of heaven and earth. I need to do something about this. And what I love here is that David's response, this response, this desire to build a temple for God, this is a good desire. What we see here in King David is this is the response of a grateful heart. What David recognizes is that God has done all these things for him, that God has delivered him, that God has set him up as king. And now, out of gratitude, he can't help but want to do something for God. So let's pick up the story and see how God responds to this desire. By the way, this is the first time we see the prophet Nathan. And I just want to make note, Nathan, who's he serving? David. Yeah, that's right. Remind Nathan when he comes back next week. Let's pick it up in verse four. It says this. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house? To dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges or leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? I love this response partly because God. He almost sounds surprised. He's like, David, you would do that for me? I've never commanded anybody to do that. God, he sees this desire of David, and he honors this desire, but he's actually going to say no. He will not allow David to build a temple. It's not until David's son comes along, Solomon, that the temple will eventually be built. But what I love here is God's response to the good king. He says, no, David, but I'm actually going to do something for you. Something much better than a temple. More, something much better than you could ever imagine. And what we're going to see in God's response is, I think, where the heart of David was. Because not only was David a good king, but living under David's kingdom was a good thing. So let's take a look at God's response. Picking it up in verse 9, it says this. God says, I have been with you wherever you went. He's reminding David, I've always been with you. 
And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. So God, he starts making promises to David. He says, I've been with you. I've cut off your enemies. I'm going to make you a great name. But did you see that next promise he makes to David? It really has nothing to do with him. It has to do with his people. You see, David, he's called the shepherd king. And one of his biggest concerns was the future and the security, not of himself, but of his people. And I love what God says. He says, David, you don't need to worry. I'm going to appoint a place for my people. I am going to plant them so that they will be disturbed no more. You see, how can we recognize that David was a good king? Well, we can recognize he was a good king because he was primarily concerned with the good of those in his kingdom. I think this is partly why in Plato's Republic, he would go on to say that the best government is an enlightened monarch. This is who David is. And just for a moment, I want to talk about some of the benefits that the people of Israel received by living under this good king. Before King David, the people of Israel were constantly at war. They were fighting the enemies of Israel. And as a result, the people had no rest. But David is now going to usher in a time of peace. In fact, he's going to bring in so much peace that his son Solomon will never have to fight a war. Before King David, the tribes of Israel were infighting. They couldn't consolidate. But David is going to bring in a time of unity and security, strengthening the kingdom and broadening its borders. In fact, as he broadens the kingdom, he's going to bring in wealth for all the people. And I just want to highlight two of these things that David brought. Peace and rest. Let me ask you this morning. Could you use some more peace and rest? I know I could. So here's the problem, though. David's kingdom, it doesn't last. His reign it comes to an end. In fact, he dies and his kingdom ends up being ripped from his descendants because they turn their backs on God. And what we're going to see in the coming weeks is although David was a good king, he's about to make some horrifically bad decisions. He's human. So this deems a question, why is this good king and this good kingdom so important? Why does it matter to us today? Well, it's important, David, his kingdom and his kingship, it's important because of ultimately what his kingdom points to. And his kingdom actually points to the much better king who would reign in the much more secure kingdom. That is King Jesus. And that's what we're going to see in these last verses. I'm going to give you a warning. We're about to read some prophecy, which can be really confusing in the Bible. So I'm just going to handhold you guys through it for a few minutes, and we're going to see how this stuff points to Jesus. So let's pick it up starting in verse 12. This is God giving more promises to David. He says this, when your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, 
who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So what exactly is going on here? What's with all this forever language? I mean, didn't I just say David's kingdom? It comes to an end? And yes, it does. But what we just read is a type of prophecy in Scripture we call parallel prophecy. Everybody repeat that with me. Parallel prophecy. And the Old Testament is filled with parallel prophecy. And if you don't understand when you're reading parallel prophecy, you're bound to misinterpret all kinds of passages in the Old Testament. So what exactly is parallel prophecy? Well, it means that there is a dual fulfillment in the prophecy. There's both a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. So let's read these verses again, and we'll read them knowing that this is parallel prophecy. It says this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after, me, after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. This is all true of Solomon, David's son. It goes on. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Who does that sound like? Does that sound like Solomon? Who do you think that is? This is pointing to Jesus, right? Solomon is never referred to as God's son. He doesn't call God father. His kingdom is not established forever. Let's read on. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Who's this about? This is about Solomon, right? Jesus, he committed no iniquity. But Solomon, as we're about to see in the coming weeks, he's bound to commit all quiet types of iniquity. He's going to marry foreign women who worship other gods, and he's going to start to worship those gods. And God is going to have to discipline Solomon for that. And eventually, the Davidic kings are going to be unseated from Israel because of their following in Solomon's corruption. However, the people of Israel, they recognized that this passage was a parallel prophecy, and that it pointed to another king, a much better king than David or Solomon, a king that would come and make all things right. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited. For generations, they waited. And it's not until Luke chapter 1 that we see word of this king's arrival. Now, in light of what we just read in 2 Samuel 7, I want us to read this passage together. This is a passage we normally read during Advent. This is uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33. This is when the angel Gabriel shows up to Mary. And he says this in Luke 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Friends, David is important because his kingship and his kingdom and his kingdom point to a much better king with a much better kingdom. And by the way, this is one of 300 Old Testament prophecies that point directly to that better king, namely Jesus. So I just want to talk about for a moment why Jesus is better than David. Well, Jesus is better than David because Jesus brings eternal peace to his subjects. You see, David, he brought physical, temporary peace, but Jesus is called the Prince of Peace because he will bring us lasting peace between us and the one we need peace with most, and that's the Father. David, he not only provided temporary peace, but he provided uh, rest for his people. But this rest was temporary. In Jesus, we gain true, eternal rest. I love how Augustine puts it. He says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. David, he established this kingdom that was limited and did not last, but Jesus would establish a kingdom that was not limited to a specific geography or ethnicity. Friends, Jesus is the better David. But his road to coronation was a little different than David's. You see, David, he was a shepherd, and God anointed him and lifted him up. David was poor and became rich. He had nothing and gained everything. But Jesus, he faced a different road. He had everything. He was seated in heaven, and he stepped off the throne. He was rich, and he became poor. David saved Israel by crushing their enemies, but Jesus was crushed for his enemies. Jesus even went to the point of death on a cross so that we could be grafted into his eternal kingdom, so that we could enter into his peace and his rest. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're sitting there thinking, well, if Jesus provides peace and rest, why don't I have it? How can I get it? And I just want to give us three really practical takeaways on how we can receive that peace and rest from Jesus. Three practical takeaways on how we can actually make Jesus king. You see, I think we miss out on the peace and rest of Christ because we, many of us, have accepted Christ as Savior, but we haven't accepted him as Lord or king. So how can we accept him as king? Well, I have three ways. Obey, accept, and rely. Obey, accept, and rely. So what do I mean by obey? This might seem overly simplistic, but I believe many of us think we're obeying and we aren't. For example, the king says, always forgive. Always tell the truth. Don't have sex outside of the context of the marriage covenant. Don't be envious. And I know none of us can do these things perfectly, but there's a difference between someone that's really tried to make Jesus king and someone that's treating Jesus as a consultant. There are some of us that are angry this morning that need to forgive. It's a command from the king. And we're missing out on his rest and his peace because we won't do it. 
There are some of us that are living divided lives. We know what the king has ordered us to do, and we're doing the opposite. Friends, we can't receive that peace and rest if we're treating him as a consultant. He won't come that way. So that's the first step, obey. The second step is accept. Now, this one is harder than obeying. Some of us are very obedient, but when we face hard circumstances, we think to ourselves, this isn't right. This isn't fair. How could God let my life go this way? And to accept means simply this. Lord, you know what's best. You know what's best. If you're having a struggle with accepting, I encourage you to read the book of Job. (laughs) Job is a man that accepted God's will. You see, the person that accepts God's will eventually will come to the point where they say, not my will, but your will be done. So obey and accept, and finally, rely. Now, what does it mean to rely on the king? Well, if we've added anything to Jesus as being a requirement for being happy, that he's not our king. If you say Jesus and X, Y, and Z, then he's not king. Whatever that thing is you've added to the list is your king, actually. To rely simply means I will make Jesus not a means to my end, but I will make him the end in and of himself. Obey, accept, and rely. And friends, when we do these things, what you'll find out is we receive those benefits of this new kingdom. We receive that rest and that peace, except we receive much better rest and peace than David brought. We accept true eternal peace and rest. Thanks be to God. To learn more about the mission and vision of Stanwich Church and how you can get involved, please visit stanwichchurch.org.